Okay, so I guess you could call this perhaps the beginning of the end that we're going to be winding down our study of the book of revelation or, or winding up, whichever, whichever you prefer. Uh, but before we go into chapter 19, I want you to think way back to the very beginning of our study, uh, through this book. When, when I, uh, I told you that as we progress deeper and deeper into the text of revelation, uh, the symbolism is going to, it's going to get more and more dense. It's going to get more and more vivid. Well, when I said that way back at the beginning, I was preparing you for chapter 19 and chapter 20. Uh, the, the symbolism there is, uh, it, it's, uh, it's pretty tough. I was preparing you for these two chapters because these two chapters are the source of so many different controversial topics, topics of debate. Uh, just about every section in these two chapters is going to be a subject of heated debate between members of of uh, different interpretational camps, and we looked at the camps before. Uh, but there are also going to be debates between members of the same camp. There, are pe- you know, it's there's so much going on in these two chapters. Um, you know, for example, there there's people that in the futurist camp that are going to disagree with each other about what's going on here in chapter 19, as well as the other camps. And so it's there's so much disagreement, so much debate about these uh, chapters. We really need a um, uh, I want to say uh, I want to say an objective an objective starting point and of course we we've seen that throughout the book of revelation in the old testament the references allusions that the uh, John is making to the old testament and how those verses apply to what we're seeing and so that's what we're going to do again and the the other thing you know cuz when we get into chapter 20 tw- it, that's going to bring us the most debated topic in all of revelation by far uh, and that's the millennium, of course. Uh, the reason I bring the millennium up here is to because how you see chapter 19 is going to directly affect the way that you view the millennium in chapter 20. So as we look into these two chapters, please try to keep um, I hate using the phrase an open mind, because when you when you understand truth, you, you really need to close your mind around it. Um, but, you know, we've all had traditions. We've all been brought up, taught uh, a certain way about something. And that's just always what it what it has been and what we've heard. Uh, what I'm asking you to do is to test everything, to test everything that you think, you know, everything that I say, test everything that I say to make sure that I'm both logically consistent and consistent with the use of scripture uh, in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. That's one of the things that you need to understand. Chapter 19 of Revelation and chapter 20 uh, don't happen in a vacuum. There are 18 chapters that come before this. And just like any other book, just like Romans, Ephesians, just like John, just like Luke, just like those books, uh, everything has its context. And when you read a regular book, just a novel or or a, a nonfiction book of any kind. It's not scripture, not even Christian religious in nature, but just a regular book. You have to allow the author to define his own terms. You have to allow the author to set up his own context and speak in his own words. And so when we take 19 and 20, uh, we are we are basing a lot of the things that we see, a lot of the images, a lot of the, the, uh, the language that's used there on what John has used before. 
four. And so what I, what I want you to do is don't just pluck out three or four verses and say, well, this is what this means. Uh, you need to base your interpretation of those verses in the text that we have seen already presented in Revelation, but also in the in the context of the allusions that are drawn from the Old Testament. We've seen that over and over again. Uh, so what I'm asking you to do is not just uh, not just uh, uh, swallow down everything I say and, and say, you know, well, that's probably right. But test everything. Test everything I say. Test everything that you've been brought up to believe. Uh, find uh, the evidence for why you believe what you believe. Um, look up the verses that I cite. I've told you this before, but, you know, I could be citing them wrong. I could be citing them out of context. At the end of the day, though, if you disagree with how I'm interpreting these chapters, we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ if we agree on the fundamentals of the nature of God, gospel of Christ, those things. Uh, so, like I said, uh, this uh, this how you view the millennium is not a fundamental gospel issue in terms of you know you don't you're going to go to hell if you don't agree with me and we can't have fellowship and uh, it's it's not it's not that way it's not that way it is an intramural debate to put it one way so the last time we looked at chapter 18 let's put it in the context we saw the the pronouncement of the judgment destruction of babylon we saw uh, all the people of the land and those who did business with the city uh, lamenting and mourning you remember that all those songs of lament from the sailors and and from the um, the merchants and all that, they were lamenting the mourning, the destruction of Babylon. Uh, but right in the midst of all that, we also heard a, a command given to God's people. They were to rejoice at the fall of Babylon, and they were to come out from among her so they wouldn't take part in her sin. And if you haven't been following along in these lessons, you need to go back and listen to all of them, uh, everything that's come before, because we've we've made a pretty ironclad case so far that this Babylon here, it now characterizes uh uh, it's a characterization that's given to Old Covenant Jerusalem, uh, which has forsaken and rejected the Messiah. And yes, if you're just joining us, uh, your shock and outrage is addressed in previous lessons. Uh, but we've seen Babylon described, uh, just a quick review, Babylon was described for us as the harlot dressed in the robes that were or were used of the high priest in the Old Testament. Uh, the harlot is the false prophet, which is promoting the religion that no, that uh, does not represent God. And we know without Christ, that is that that is that fundamental religion. It was also used by the beast, which Rome, which Revelation 17 tells us is Rome, the city on seven hills. Seven Kings, we saw that, and we took all that apart and looked at it. And Rome did use um, Jerusalem, the first century Jerusalem, to influence the, the Jewish people, the people of the land, and all that kind of stuff. So go back and listen to all of those. We made a pretty a pretty strong case, I believe, from the Old Testament allusions and from the context of Revelation that that is so. So here in the first part of chapter 19, we're going to see uh, the rejoicing. Uh, remember, he told uh, the believers last in the in chapter 18 to rejoice at the fall of Babylon. Well, here in chapter 19, we're going to see that rejoicing, the rejoicing of the faithful remnant, uh, because, uh, you know, they're rejoicing because God's judgments upon Babylon. And and, uh, you know, the, the second part of the chapter, we're going to see this rider on a white horse coming from heaven. But we'll get into that when we get there. Um, what dominates this chapter is a picture of two feasts. Uh, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
and, and you have the feast of the birds, which you don't hear too much about, you know, don't hear too much about in preaching. Um, but, um, the feast of the birds is, uh, the, uh, the, the call to the birds of prey to come and feast on the people who've been killed in the judgment. Uh, but before we get into too much detail all about that, let's start with the hallelujah chorus, uh, that celebrates the destruction of Babylon. We have just made the case that the destruction of Babylon is first century Jerusalem. You already already talked about that. They rejected Messiah, uh, and, and God brought the Roman army in judgment uh, to destroy them in 70 AD. As we look at this, I don't know if I've mentioned this too often before, but he used the Roman army the same way he used Babylon, Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, the same way he used Assyria as Isaiah chapter 10, the rod of his anger. But uh, but don't think that the Romans were like, hey, we're going to do God's bidding now. You know, We're going to go attack Jerusalem because God wills it. They were just following the evil inclinations of their heart. God was just con- God was controlling history behind the scenes. Um, but so so here we're going to get another picture, another piece of evidence that shows uh, we are again, again, seeing a recapitulation of that judgment that we have seen over and over again. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, over and over again, we saw the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, and we saw the parallels between them uh, based in the Old Testament, the plagues of Egypt, how they paralleled those things. And so we saw we have seen over and over again that uh, Revelation is not a chronological timeline like a journalist giving a news report of the end times. It's a spir- It's a, a spiral that every time it comes back around to show that judgment, it gets more and more intense, more and more expansive. For instance, um, the in the seal, the seal judgments, breaking of the seals, you had one fourth of the land destroyed. You had one fourth of the waters turned to blood. You had one fourth of the sun uh, or one, uh, you know, darkness coming on. And then in the trumpet judgments, you had one third, one third of the land destroyed, one third of the people killed, one third of the the, the rivers and streams and the, the seas turned to blood. And then in the bowl judgments, you had the entirety, you know, instead of uh, a third of the sun being struck, it was all darkness. And then uh, all of the land was destroyed and all the people were killed. And so what we've seen throughout is a recapitulation of the same uh, judgment, but we've seen it intensified. We've seen it. We've seen it. Um, we've seen it m- m- moving and and expanding as we go. So John is depicting these things, and so here we're going to see basically the same thing. The language that is going to be used in the first part of this chapter, where the Hallelujah, hallelujah chorus is, and where the saints are, are are praising and worshiping God for the destruction of Babylon. Uh, heavenly courts praising him, those things. It is the almost identical language that we saw in chapter 11 of Revelation that introduced the seven trumpet, the seventh trumpet judgment, the, the destruction, the completion of this. And of course, if you've been following along, you remember we saw the unmistakable parallels between the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, uh, which, you know, brought judgment to its climax. Well, we're going to see the same thing here. All these verses are, are set side by side in the outline. If you want to go get it at jasonlotta.com where you can see it. But what we're going to see here is, uh, for instance, you have in both images, you have the voices uh, in heaven. You have the multitude of voices in heaven. Uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. You got loud voices in heaven uh, shouting, and then here in Revelation nineteen one. Loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Uh, you have the praise for God's reign 
uh, uh, Revelation eleven fifteen, and then in verse 17, it says, He will reign forever and ever. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. And here in Revelation 19, 1, and then in 19, 6, he says, Hallelujah, salvation, power, and glory belong to our God, for, our, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And then you also have the worship of the 24 elders. In Revelation eleven sixteen, the 24 elders fall down in worship. And then in Revelation 19, 4, the exact same phrase, the 24 elders fall down in worship. Then you have the avenging of the martyrs, of the servants of God, Revelation eleven eighteen, And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, that and those who fear you, fear your name, both small and great. He rewarded them, uh, meaning he vindicated them. And then in Revelation 19, 2, and then in 19, 5, it says, and he has avenged on her, the blood, talking about Babylon, uh, the blood of his servants, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Same phraseology, you who fear him, they who fear him, uh, both small and great. And then, of course, you got the image of thunder, uh, uh, lightnings, flashings uh, in Revelation eleven nineteen, flashings, lightning, rum, rumbles, peals of thunder. Uh, Revelation nineteen six, the mighty sound of uh, the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So even before we read the text, before we get into the very beginning of it, we know what we're talking about here. We are seeing the rejoicing of God's people because of the victory over the persecutors of His Messiah, and we're seeing the same judgment that we saw in the trumpets, which was the same that was the bowls uh all the language it, it parallels each other and the illusions parallel each other uh the the trumpets take took imagery from the exodus plagues as did the as did the bowls and it, it's pointing to the same thing and we have a problem with that because we're used to reading news reports about events and revelation is is uh, scripture depicting uh depicting you know warning seven churches uh about what was to come of course but it was also meant to teach us uh um who God is and who Christ is and the victory that Christ has won for us. And again, I'm not one of those people you may, if you're listening this first time, there are some people who say that all of Revelation is complete and, and the second coming itself is just uh, mystical and symbolic and it's not really going to happen. I'm not one of those people. We're going to see a shift here. We're going to see a shift in chapter 20, actually, where we move from the first century to the whole of uh, of the church age and beyond to the new Jerusalem. So we're going to see that shift. I'm just showing you that it it hasn't happened yet in the writings of in the writing of Revelation. So let me read the first five verses to show you this hallelujah chorus, and then we'll go back and examine them. Um, uh, we probably won't take it text by text because there's so much in chapter 19. It'll be three hours long if I if I don't hurry. Um, but I want you to see the structure of what we're seeing and how it lends itself to the worship of Israel during the Day of Atonement. Uh, I'll show you what I mean about by that in a moment. So if you don't quite understand, it's okay. Let's read the first five verses together. It's quite a bit of text. So follow along with me. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute, the harlot who 
corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Uh, Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, wait a minute. It says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Do you see the declaration of God's attributes and the response? Hallelujah. You see first the call and then the answer, the, 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 they said, hallelujah, God reigns. And then the call uh, was like a, it's like a responsive responsive worship service going on uh, that has significance in Israel's uh, worship during the day of atonement in the liturgy of Israel let me read to you just a quick section from Alfred Edersheim's book uh, it's called the temple its ministry and services as they were at the time of Jesus Christ um, on pages it's a great book Alfred Edersheim uh, if you uh, want context about first century Jerusalem or second temple Jerusalem Jerusalem. It is a it's a wonderful resource on page 223 and 224. It says this and he's describing um, he's describing the worship on the Day of Atonement. He says, while this was going on, what he's talking about there is the priest pouring blood out on the altar, pouring the 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 blood of the lamb out on the altar, the sacrifice out on the altar. He says, while this was going on, a most solemn hymn of praise was raised. The Levites leading in song and the officers either repeating after them or merely responding. Every first line of a psalm was repeated by the people, while to each of the others they responded by a hallelujah or Hallelujah means praise ye the Lord. Uh, this service of song consisted of the so-called Hallel, which compromises Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Thus, and he gives an example. He says, the Levites began, Hallelujah, which means praise ye the Lord. Uh, and then the people respond, Hallelujah. The Levites say, praise, which is Hallelujah, uh, um, O ye servants of Jehovah, And then the people respond, hallelujah. The Levites say, praise the name of Jehovah. And the people respond, hallelujah. Uh, Similarly, this is still quoting Edersheim here. Similarly, when Psalm 113 has been finished, Psalm 114, the Levites would say, when Israel went out of Egypt. And the people respond, when Israel went out of Egypt. The Levites say, the house of Jacob from a people of strong language the people respond, hallelujah. This is still quoting Edersheim. He says, and in the same manner, repeating each first line and responding at the rest, hallelujah, till they came to Psalm 118, which besides the first, these three lines were also repeated by the people. Save now, I beseech thee, Jehovah. O Jehovah, I beseech thee, send now prosperity and blessed be he that cometh in the name of Jehovah. And then Edersheim makes this um, makes this correlation. He says, in, in still quoting from these pages in his book, he says, May it not be that to this solemn and impressive hymn corresponds the hallelujah song of the redeemed church in heaven as described in Revelation 19, 1, 3, 4, and 6. Now, within the text that we read, see, Edersheim even makes the 
conclusion that this is what's going on in, in Revelation 19. You have this responsive, uh, you have this responsive uh, um, uh, answering. The the in the temple liturgy, the priests would call out with uh, one of the lines of the psalm. The people respond, "Hallelujah!" What you see here is the same kind of thing. You see the hallelujah, and then a, a declaration of God's power, or God's sovereignty, or God's mercy, or God's judgment, or God's righteousness, or or, or God's deliverance. Those things, and then the response comes back again, "Hallelujah!" So th- there are multiple references and allusions to the Old Testament in the first five verses that we just read. Uh, but because there's so much that we have to cover in this chapter, I'm just going to go ahead and move ahead. Uh, pretty much everything else in this chapter is controversial, and it requires explanation. Um, but the hallelujah chorus that we just read, those first five, five verses, it's pretty easy for us to understand. It's just simply a praise to God's um, God's glory, God's uh, judgment in, in what he has done. Uh, and and uh, I would say, uh, I would like to say that, that what we're seeing here is another fulfillment of Old Testament imagery, and that ought to be plain by now. Uh, two things scream to me, showing that all this is what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. First, you have the liturgy, the liturgical structure of the Day of Atonement. We, we saw that a minute ago. Um, this is fulfilled in the final judgment of Jerusalem. And, and the second thing that we see is the fact that here in Revelation, a lot of people miss this. Uh, it, which, you know, Revelation was written in Greek. We have the word hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word. It's not translated, praise ye the Lord. It's not written in Greek as praise the Lord. It's simply transliterated, which means it's simply written hallelujah in Greek. Um, it, it, what, I'm, what that means is hallelujah is a Hebrew. It's Hebrew for praise the Lord. If I was translating the Hebrew Bible into English, I wouldn't write hallelujah. I would write praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. I would translate that to say praise ye the Lord. Uh, why didn't John just write praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord in Greek? Why didn't he just say praise the Lord? And the people said praise the Lord. And the people said praise the Lord. I mean, if he wanted to say praise the Lord, why not just say praise the Lord? Why use this transliteration of the Hebrew word hallelujah Uh and the answer it should be obvious. It's because John wants the reader, even those who don't speak Hebrew, to see the Old Testament fulfillment that's found here. Hallelujah was the word, the praise ye the Lord. That was the responsive word that Israel uh, gave to uh, the to the priest when he said, you know, the the beginning of those psalms. And John wants us to draw attention to that. Otherwise, you know, he would have just said, you know, and the people said, praise the Lord. They're praising the Lord. It's a it's a it's a it's a chorus of praise, you know, but he puts this Hebrew transliteration there for us to uh, pay attention to. So moving on in verse six of this chapter, we're told that this voice, uh, voice of the multitude cries, hallelujah, uh, again, and they praise God for his his uh, his sovereignty. And they praise God also for the marriage supper of the lamb. Verses six through eight say this. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him uh, the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. A whole lot there. So let's take it apart. It says, it says uh, the rejoicing is continuing. Of course, we still have the hallelujah going on. Uh, the they, they praise God because, you know, he's reigning. The Lord of God Almighty reigns. But they also rejoice and give him glory, it says, because the marriage of the lamb has come in, in verse nine. We're going to see this referred to as the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the lamb. Um, the harlot who was unfaithful to the covenant union with God, uh, which we have seen repeatedly is the old covenant Judaic system without the Messiah. It, the harlot has been cast away and the marriage of this new bride, the bride of the lamb has come it's about to commence uh, and and we'll see this pictured more fully as the new jerusalem as opposed to the old jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for a groom but notice that this bride he says this bride has clothed herself in fine linen bright and pure and then we're told what this fine linen is it is the righteous deeds of the saints now what you see the correlation the the uh, juxtaposition that he's doing here the bride is not like the unfaithful wife uh, the harlot, the uh, the prostitute that played the harlot with other gods. She is not playing the harlot with the gods. She is serving the God of Israel. Uh, but there's a huge, huge difference here that uh, we need to make sure that we see. It says in verse eight that it was granted to her to clothe herself. So this isn't just the idea of the bride working, you know, more righteously than the unfaithful wife. It's just, it's not the idea of this bride is better than the other bride because they act better and they behave better. This is, of course, we know a gift of God. It was granted to her. She has, and it's granted through by grace, through faith in the Messiah, the one who has come. Jesus has been granted, uh, Jesus, Jesus has granted the bride to clothe herself. So what we see here is a picture of regeneration. We see it a picture of regeneration, the new covenant, the remaking of hearts. The bride of Christ has been circumcised in her heart, in their hearts. It's just as the prophecy of Ezekiel foretold. God said, I will take out your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh and I'll cause you to keep my commandments. This is a picture of being saved. It's a, it's a picture of being changed by the Holy Spirit. The righteous deeds and actions in and of themselves, uh, God says, are filthy rags in Isaiah uh, because they are stained with sin. And the human heart's desperately wicked and can't help but stray after other gods. But these who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb they have been transformed it was granted to them to clothe themselves in fine linen which is the right righteous deeds of the saints they have been made new creatures and now they strive to serve christ because of who they are now they have been born again and so god um uh, he has uh, quote given to them that they should clothe themselves in righteous deeds. Uh, this harkens back to Isaiah prophecies in Isaiah 60 talk about the the uh, fulfillment and culmination of all these things. And uh, Isaiah 62 verses four and six says it will no longer. It's a prophecy about the coming um, the coming. Uh, uh, bl blessing of the uh, latter days. It says it will no longer be said to you forsaken. 
nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and to him your land will be married for as a young man marries a virgin so your sons will marry you and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride so your God will rejoice over you and these these are pictures of the fulfillment of the true Israel the people of God who are in Jesus Christ. And we've made that case all the way through Revelation from the text of Scripture. It's not just our opinion. So you can go back and listen to all those. Uh, to say it simply, the, uh, the perfect bride is perfect because Christ has made her perfect through the gospel. She clothes herself in righteous deeds because God has changed her heart and given her his spirit. And incidentally, uh, we can say that from the ascension of Christ up to the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, if you think about it, the church was busy making herself ready. The apostles' uh, ministries, which resulted in, I mean, exponential spread of Christianity, the production of the scriptures, uh, the preparing the people of the first century, both Jew and Gentile, to come out from the old religion, uh, they sounded the warning. They had been preparing for 40 years. And now, finally, the hammer of God's judgment has fallen on biblical Judaism, the temple, and the city of Jerusalem itself. Um, so then in verse 9, we see an angel comes, and he speaks to John. He says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This marriage supper anticipates and celebrates the, um, uh, the reality, the reality of the union that believers now have with God. Uh, the old has been removed and the new has come, just like Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, 13 say the time that, uh, that, uh, all the law and the prophets look forward to, is now here. The marriage supper is the celebration of salvation, which is perfect and eternal through Christ. Uh, Jesus himself gave the um, illustration of a, a wedding banquet a few times uh, when he was describing these things. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to read just verses 1 through 7. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Uh, he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted calf, uh, my fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That is clear. Uh, that's a clear parable uh, speaking to, you know, there's another place where he talks about those that are invited wouldn't come. So he went out and he got those from the highways and the hedges. Uh, it's clear distinction, Jew and Gentile. Those, uh, And we've seen over and over again in, in the Gospels that Jesus said upon this generation, speaking to the first century uh, Jewish aristocracy and the religious uh, Judaism of the day, he said, which uh, upon this generation will come the blood of all the prophets and all the saints and all the martyrs and those who have been killed. 
So it's not a it's not a real leap in logic. I don't think it's not a real leap in it's not interpret interpretational gymnastics to say uh, to envision what we're seeing here <clears throat> by uh, by uh, this uh, all being culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse ten says, uh, "Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. This is the angel speaking. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Jesus worship." God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John is so overcome by what he's seeing this, this uh, banquet in preparation for the marriage that's about to happen. The marriage of the, of the, the bride and the groom. He's so overcome by the greatness of what he's seeing um, that he falls down to worship this message bringer, this angel. And of course, immediately the angel rebukes him, tells him, you know, he's <clears throat> only to worship God, not his fellow servants. And incidentally, this is one of the most forceful verses in terms of Christ's divinity, in terms of Christ's God's godhood, because several times the Gospels, Jesus was worshipped by his uh, disciples. He never dissuaded them from worshiping. I mean, Thomas, at, at uh, when, when Jesus appeared to the to the disciples after the resurrection, Thomas called him my Lord and my God. He said to him, my Lord and my God, when Jesus showed him the scars from the, you know, the crucifixion and, and and Jesus didn't rebuke him at all. And matter of fact, he told him it was an act of faith what he had just said. Uh, but here we have a heavenly being, an angel, who refuses worship because he knows only God is to be worshipped. So if someone says that Jesus is not divine, you know, if, if you say that, that he's not God, then neither can you say that he was just a good moral teacher because he accepted worship uh, when clearly even the angelic hosts won't. Uh, so Jesus is indeed divine, both God and man. Of course, we know that. And this is this is the message that that's brought forth. The angel also says something is very interesting. He says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Now, notice the point first of the angel. He, he you know, he's told John not to worship him because the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. John is being given the prophecy and just like all prophecy, even the old Testament prophecies. Yes. The purpose of them is to point to Jesus. People think of prophecy today as if it's just telling you about the future or, you know, even more specific, what's going to happen in your life. You know, it's wielded around like an attraction at a religious service. You know, come find out what's going to happen, you know, in the last days as we count down to the you know, destruction of the world. Or come find out if your uncle from up north is going to come see you or, you know, find out what's in store for you for the next year. And that's supposed to be prophecy. But the fact is that in the vast majority of instances, the prophets, even the Old Testament prophets, didn't necessarily tell the future. They simply said, this is what the Lord says. They said, thus saith the Lord. Uh, more often than not, they were giving warnings and exhortations to repent and turn to God or judgments coming. Uh, the point they were all making was they were pointing uh, ultimately to the Messiah, to Christ as Savior and Deliverer. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus appeared to those two disciples, um, it's at the end of Luke, uh, the Bible says uh, after he opened their eyes and he they realized it was the resurrected Christ before them, he says it says, and beginning with Moses, the writings of the Torah, Moses, first five books of the Bible and all the prophets, 
not just some of the prophets, but all the prophets. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, every one of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He is found throughout scripture. I had a conversation with a man just the other day about the old Testament and, uh, and, uh, it is the Old Testament is Christian scriptures. It is scriptures that point to Jesus. We have a tendency to think, well, the Old Testament, that's the that's the Jewish Bible. And we have the New Testament and we kind of read their Bible just, for, you know, for to get history and stuff like that. No, it is the Christian scriptures. It is pointing to the Messiah and to read the Messiah out to read Christ out of the Old Testament is to miss the point of the Old Testament. Jesus opened the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted it to these two disciples, all the things concerning himself. But listen, remember what the angel said. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So what is prophecy for? What's the purpose of prophecy? What's the purpose of the revelation? Is it to tell you the end times? Is it to is it to tell you, you know, play by play, point by point, what's going to happen? Is it to is it to give you a journalistic news report about the the last days, or is it to testify of Jesus? He says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It's to testify about Jesus. Now, to say the testimony of Jesus, this uh, scholars have noted this can be taken two different ways. And to be honest, I think both are true. I think both are true. Uh, the testimony of Jesus uh, can be seen as either what's called, um, forgive me, it, it's called a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. And what that means is a genitive is uh, an of statement, you know, the 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 price of this or the 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 temple of Jerusalem. That's a genitive. A subjective genitive would mean that it means the testimony of Jesus is the testimony that Jesus has given to the world. It's Jesus who gives the testimony. That's, that would be a subjective genitive. Uh, Jesus gives the testimony. And of course, that's true. That's the spirit of prophecy. Uh, Jesus's testimony to the world that he is the Messiah. He is the, the one who has come. He is the one who died, rose again for the sins of the world. Uh, but an objective genitive would mean that the testimony of Jesus is the testimony that believers give about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the object of the testimony that other people give. So the preaching of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that is also true. Uh, so the testimony of Jesus can be taken both, both. Uh, the point is clear. The point of the prophecy, the point of prophecy and the spirit uh, in which it is given is centered and focused on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. So that's the uh, the what the angel says to John. Now, here is where the controversy is going to heat up. Uh, how you see this next section of Revelation 19 is going to pretty much determine how you view the millennium. And we will talk about the different millennial views next time in chapter 20. To be honest, I am not looking forward to it at all. Uh, the the next vision that John's given in 19, however, is the opening of heaven and the coming of this rider 
on a white horse. Uh, so the question's obvious. Is this the second coming of Christ? Is it the end of the world? Uh, what exactly is going on here? Uh, I wish I had a real easy and simple answer for you. Uh, the fact is that there are people from every camp who disagree. It's just it's just a fact. Uh, just like the millennium, people within the same interpretational camps disagree about this. So I'm going to tell you right up front that it is possible. It is possible that this is the second coming of Christ. It's possible. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that this is what John is seeing. But I'm going to show you what I see, give you some evidence as to why I think that it's depicting something else. And you just make up your own mind. There are lots of smart people, lots of godly people who do believe that it is the second coming of Christ. And, you know. Like I said, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, uh, and it is feasible. It is feasible. I will grant it from the language that's used. Um, but let me tell you what I think. Uh, first, uh, although it, it shouldn't take much explanation, I mean, pretty much everybody agrees that this is a picture of Christ. I mean, it's hard to miss the fact that this is this is Christ on the horse It says in verse 11. Then I then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I mean, what an image Uh, heaven opening up and Christ coming on a white horse to make war. Uh, It certainly sounds like it could be the second coming. But you, you remember the first part of the lesson where we saw that. Uh, the beginning structure structure of chapter 19 mirrored what we saw in the seventh trumpet of chapter 11. Uh, we're still seeing the same thing. Do you remember what happened at the end of the blowing of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 of Revelation? Remember what happened at the end? If you don't remember Revelation 11:19, the end of the the end of the the seventh trumpet judgment. It says, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashings, lightnings, rumblings, all that. So we are once again seeing we're seeing the same thing we saw in Revelation 11. We're seeing the heavens open. But before we get into exactly what John's being shown, let's take a minute to go through the description of this writer. I mean, who is obviously Christ. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. It's, I mean, it's pretty plain, pretty obvious. Uh, these descriptions of him are, are well known. You probably already know uh, where they come from. Uh, we've seen them. We've seen some of them already in Revelation uh, verses 11. The second part of 11 and, and verse through verse 13 says the one sitting on it, the horse is called faithful and true. Uh, that is what Christ is called in Revelation 314 um, to uh, the letter to one of the churches. And in righteousness, he judges make makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire. We've seen that already in Revelation and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. You shouldn't have any trouble uh, connecting the dots. The fact that John wrote John one, one in the beginning was the word and he calls him the word of God here in revelation as well. You know, uh, his robe dipped in blood. We'll see in a moment points to a passage in Ezekiel. It's not his sacrificial blood that his robe is dipped in. It's the blood of his enemies on whom he judges and makes war. We're going to see that in a minute. He, he treads down the wine press of, of his wrath. Um, and of course, Jesus, of course, we already said he's called by the word. It's pretty safe to say we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is Christ. This is Christ riding this white horse coming out of heaven. <clears throat> 
And it says, verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. We are not specifically told whether these are the martyrs, the, the people in heaven who died, uh, the, the souls of the saints that follow him or the angelic hosts that come with him. Uh, there, there are arguments for both sides. Uh, to be honest, it could be either. It could be both. Um, earlier in this chapter, we saw that the bride herself has been has clothed herself with fine linen, white and pure, the same thing that these uh, riding horses are wearing. Um, but we of, often see the heavenly hosts of angels assembling to make war uh, in, in scripture. Uh, but the, that question's kind of uh, kind of a little moot because where it gets interesting is, yes, he's coming to make war, but look at the weapon that he uses to wage his war. It's his word. The war is waged the entire. You look through chapter 19 and read it verse by verse, word by word. You will not find anything that uh, doesn't um, point to the fact that he is making war here. He is seen coming, judging and making war against his enemies by his word. The, really, the 15 says from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Which with which to strike down the nations It's from his mouth that this sword comes. Of course, we know that the the word and he will rule them with a rod of iron is a reference to Psalm chapter two. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the of God almighty. So this war and judgment that he's coming to wage is a battle that is waged with the word of God. It, it isn't a physical battle where Jesus rides out on a white horse, hacking and slashing his physical enemies. Uh, this is a spiritual battle fought with the word of God. Now, most of us know the image of the word of God is a two edged sword, but the symbolism of the sword coming from the mouth, it comes from Isaiah chapter 49, verse two, which is talking about the suffering servant talking about Christ, the one who suffers the, the servant of God. It says he has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He he has concealed me and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Uh, but also notice in Isaiah 49, six, just a few verses later, the purpose of this servant, he says it is. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, the remnant of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so you see the point of the sword coming out of his mouth, the point in Isaiah chapter 49, we see the suffering servant has the sword that's come out of his mouth <clears throat> that God uses as an arrow that uses as an instrument of war. And the purpose of his war in Isaiah chapter 49, which John is quoting here in Revelation, is to raise up the remnant of Israel and to bring the gospel, the light to the nations. He says, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you see how we've talked about this over and over again in Revelation, how the wiping away of biblical Judaism, the wiping away of the temple structure, the wiping away of the old covenant, um, the old covenant uh, um, structure 
um, it, it paved the way. It opened the door uh, for not only the vindication of all the claims that Christ had made, but the vindication of the apostles' ministry and the the uh, the, the spreading of the gospel uh, across the world. Although you know it was already spreading, but it was a vindication of those things. It was a um, um, a judgment upon the upon the harlot. So the imagery. Um, from which John is drawing here in Isaiah, you have the sword coming from the mouth of the servant. And the purpose of this battle is to raise up the remnant and to give light to the Gentiles. And this is exactly what the gospel has done. It also said there, we skipped over some things, but it says he'll rule with the rod of iron. That's from Psalm two, verse nine. And then it says he'll, he'll tread the wine press of God's wrath. <clears throat> If you see, this is also a direct allusion from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 2 through 6, which speaks of what is to come. Um, It says, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in a wine press? Remember, it says the robe that's dipped in blood. And this is the answer when he asks, why is your garments red? He says, I have trodden the wine uh, alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. And my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And so you see this image. And verse 16 says, on his robe, Jesus, we're back to the white rider now. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, you know, this doesn't doesn't need much explanation. It's Christ who is King of Kings. It's he who is sovereign in control of history. Uh, then John tells us something very strange. In the midst of this picture of Christ riding out in victory with the weapon of his word, we are shown another invitation to a feast. We have already seen the marriage supper of the lamb, right? That's the feast of the marriage supper. And of course, we saw the blessing of being invited to it. But here we're going to see the other side of the coin. Verse 17 and 18 say, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. This is the feast of the birds. He says, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Notice who is invited to this feast. It's the birds who are invited. They're invited to come and feast on the flesh of those who have been destroyed. This image, and here's where we're going to get into controversy in the next chapter as well. This image is taken from Ezekiel 39, which is the battle of Gog and Magog. And a lot of questions about when this battle takes place, uh, whether it's a future end time battle that Ezekiel is pointing to, or whether it's a battle in the past. Um, If you take Ezekiel's uh, rendition of the battle Literally, as I believe that you should, uh, this battle is going to be fought with swords and spears and horses. And and, and so it's pro- probably not a not a good idea to push it off into the future. But 
In Ezekiel 39, verse 4, it says, I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. In Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20, I'm going to read this entire text to you. Listen closely to it. It says, As for you, son of man, Thus saith the Lord, son of man, here is Ezekiel. He's saying these things. Uh, Speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the land of the earth. Uh, of the land of rams of lambs of he goats bulls all the fat beasts of Bashan and you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk he's talking to the birds at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers with mighty men all kinds of warriors declares the Lord and so what you see is you see this illusion John is pointing he's using almost the same language that Ezekiel chapter 39 uses. So the the question we got to ask is why refer to Ezekiel's Gog and Magog imagery? Um, Greg Beale in his commentary, he says, I'm going to read you this quote just to give you uh, another perspective, another point of view. It says, the portrayal in Ezekiel 39 has been included because its main point is that God will make known his holy name, both to Israel and to Israel's oppressors during captivity by defeating Gog and Magog. The goal of revealing the divine name introduces Ezekiel 39, 7 and concludes the description of the slaughter. God's name is revealed so that Israel and the persecuting nations will know that I am the Lord. Um, God will be recognized by all. Uh, in particular, God, I'm still quoting, in particular, God will make his name known to Israel by saving and being present with Israel, and he will reveal his name to the nations by judging Gog and Magog. The same dual theme with respect to the revelation of Christ's name has been the overriding concern of Revelation 19, 11 through 16. So he's saying the revelation of, of the name of God by, by bringing these, this judgment down, by inviting these birds to the feast and showing is the revealing of who God is. It's the vindication of Christ. And of course, we've been saying this entire time that that vindication of Christ revealing that he is the Lord so that they would know that I am the Lord. That is an, an overriding um, a theme of uh, part and parcel to the destruction of Jerusalem as well as punishment. If you remember, we've said this before, being eaten by birds of prey is also a covenant judgment that's promised to Israel. To old covenant Israel, if they break covenant in Deuteronomy 28, 26, he says, if you're talking about if you break covenant with me, your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. There shall be no one to frighten them away. And being eaten by birds, it's also a well-known image of defeat, death in battle. Uh, you see that in First Samuel 17, First Kings 14, Second uh, Kings 9, Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 15. Uh, all those are listed in the outline. And so what you're seeing here is you're seeing these two feasts. You have the marriage supper of the 
lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to this supper that is in celebration and preparation for the perfect union of the new bride of the lamb, the perfect bride of the lamb. And you see the judgment and destruction of the harlot. You see the destruction of the the uh, uh, unfaithful, the unfaithful wife, the one who has broken covenant with you, with with uh, with with God and Christ's coming. Christ coming on a white horse is the same thing that we've seen as the temple is open in heaven, as the heavens open. Uh, it was indeed Rome that came and sacked Jerusalem, but it was Christ by his word that uh, that orchestrated and actually brought this judgment to pass. We're going to see that just a little bit more as we, we go. We're almost finished. Finally, John brings us back to the point of the vision. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the land with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that image sound familiar? It should. It's the same image we saw in Revelation sixteen fourteen, As the, remember the demonic spirits, the, the frogs. Uh, brought it says they brought the kings together for war and remember we saw Zechariah fourteen two alluded to there in Revelation sixteen he'll bring the armies against Jerusalem uh, but also it's an allusion from Psalm two two the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel uh, together against the Lord and His anointed uh, we'll also see this re- uh, image in Revelation uh, but what you're seeing here again of course is re- this recapitulation this this coming around of the imagery we've seen it it's recapitulated from Revelation eleven it's also recapitulated from Revelation sixteen what is going on in Revelation sixteen do you remember it was the gathering of the armies of the world the Roman Empire and all the other national arguments the entire known civilized Roman Empire against Jerusalem. Uh, so what we have here is another picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. But this time we're seeing it from a spiritual perspective. In this recapitulation of this this judgment, we're, we're not just seeing armies battling and we're not just seeing uh, walls being breached. And and we're seeing we're seeing uh, the the true victory that's taking place here as as Christ comes uh, on a white horse, symbolizing his victory. And and his word is the weapon that he uses to destroy his enemies. Uh, the Romans came to destroy the city, just like Jesus prophesied they would in Luke. Uh, but this wasn't just a random act of violence. This was a judgment brought about uh, upon the city uh, by God himself. It was the victory of Christ's word over his enemies, the sword from his mouth. Jesus comes as um, he, he comes as a warrior king to do battle against those who oppose him. And Christ is vindicated in his messianic role in his life, his death, his resurrection, because by his word, this destruction takes place. So they all have assembled to do battle for their own particular reasons. Like I said, the, the, the Romans and the auxiliaries, they weren't, they weren't out to, uh, to win a battle for Christ. Uh, they were following their own sinful inclinations, their own hearts. Um, but they have both Rome and Jerusalem have aligned themselves against Christ and they will both end up defeated as the, as they wage war against the word of Christ. And we've already seen the persecution by both groups against Christ's people, uh, both the beast, which we have repeatedly, you know, we, we've repeatedly seen as symbolizing the Roman Empire through Revelation and the false prophet, which was clearly laid out to be the religious Jewish aristocracy and temple priesthood um all that's laid out in chapter 17 are taken and thrown into the lake of fire now to be fair 
this is a this is a hard verse. It's a hard verse for me. It's a hard verse for um, it's a hard verse for anybody who has followed Revelation the way that we have followed it. It says verse twenty, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now. This is this is really the only issue that I have. Um, there are four possibilities, as and they're laid out by a guy named Ralph Bass. Um, four possibilities of what this could be. Um, number one, uh, we've seen that Nero is the beast. Nero, representative of the Roman Empire as a whole, in in Revelation, both Nero and the empire as a as a whole are. Uh, uh, term the beast in the same way that you could say, um, you know, if Russia attacked Crimea, you could also say Vladimir Putin attacked Crimea because he represents. So Nero has already been seen. It says, uh, you know, the the in Revelation 17, the beast. And so it says uh, one possibility is that Nero and the high priests in Jerusalem were indeed in bodily form thrown alive into the fire, which burns with brimstone. Um uh, second possibility is that they were indeed thrown alive into the lake of fire. Uh, but what is referred to there is their souls being thrown into the lake of fire. Um, the third possibility is when the futurists would hold. It says this will all happen in the future. It's not yet been fulfilled. And, of course, if you take this position, uh, you remove historic Jerusalem and Rome uh, from their first century uh, from our, our current interpretation and look for another interpretation in a different time of history. Uh, and the fourth is that this passage is simply a metaphor of divine judgment. Um, the lake of fire will be defined for us in Revelation 20 as the second death, eternal torment. That's what the lake of fire is that's what it represents and over and again jesus talked about a place burning you know where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and uh and all those kind of things so it will be defined for us we don't have to we don't have to try to struggle for a definition of the lake of fire uh it is the second death is given to us in revelation it is eternal torment so it says that uh, the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire uh that burns with brimstone so depending i think that i'm i'm of the view that this speaks of uh this speaks of the the leadership of both nero um and the uh those who died in the destruction of jerusalem those who led the people astray the false prophet uh, who who deceived them over and over again uh dying and their their souls being cast into eternal torment we'll talk more about the reality of the lake of fire as we get into revelation 20 but i will would say to in all fairness to people that are listening this it, this verse is is hard it's hard for me to interpret as somebody who has walked as we've walked from chapter four all the way to uh chapter uh, 19 the beginning of chapter 19 uh i have <clears throat> i've laid out the case and i i believe it's ironclad i i believe that it's I mean, it just can't be any other based on the references to the Old Testament. But as we come here, we have we have reached a, a place where um, it's just cloudy. 
it's cloudy and I'm, I'm willing to say uh, I'm not going to take a dogmatic stance where, you know, I say, you know, I've got it all figured out and this is where it is. Uh, I'm going to tell you the truth that this is a, this is a hard verse for uh, for our uh, the way that we have seen revelation flow. And so there are other people that are more dogmatic, but uh, uh, I'm going to tell you just I'm going to tell you where I stand. So finally, we're going to talk about the lake of fire's reality and what it actually is as we go into Revelation 20. This here is going to be uh, um, as we end up uh, the the going back to the the feast of the birds. Verse 21, it says, and the rest were slain by the look what they were slain by the sword that came from his mouth, the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Notice how they're slain. They're not slain with um, they're not slain with physical swords or spears, but with the sword that comes from the mouth of the writer. So let me lay out as we end, let me lay out a few lines of evidence and you decide what you think. Number one, the only weapon that's used against the enemy by the writer is it, it seems is, is the word, the word of Christ, the, the sword that comes from his mouth. It's an allusion to Isaiah of the, the servant whose word goes forth like a sword to bring the nations to salvation. It seems like this is a spiritual war waged with the word a picture of the power and purpose behind the siege of jerusalem um, but also uh, a picture of the war that continues to go on as the word continues to go out and is being attacked by the enemy and is uh, conquering bringing people into the kingdom of god uh, in revelation 20 verses 1 through 3 which we haven't gotten to yet uh, but it's tied to chapter 19 god protects the nations from being deceived by the binding of satan uh, and that makes little sense to me if chapter 19 shows the destruction of the nations in a final battle remember it said and all the nations were uh, the rest of the nations were slain by the word that comes from his mouth if that's talking about actually being killed with a sword being slain with in a physical battle it it doesn't make much sense for the very next section to say god protected the nations from being deceived by satan if all of them are dead uh so it it points to a spiritual it points to a spiritual battle. The third thing is the identity of the beast and the false prophet are given specifically to us in chapter 17. You can see the notes there. So the coming of Christ here is both the judgment on Jerusalem, the warrior king coming to avenge his people, and the vindication of the gospel message of the kingdom. This war destroyed the remnants of the old covenant and continues today as the word goes to the nations and subduing the kingdom of darkness. Revelation 1 7 said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, the ones who pierced him, will see him, those first century Jews, and all the tribes of the land will mourn over him. Uh, let me end with a with a, um, a vivid application that's given uh, by a man named David Clark. Um, this is cited in a book by Steve Gregg, but it says, This is what David Clark says about this text. It says, But does the conquest of this rider on the white horse pertain only? 
only to the Roman Empire. Must we be ever dealing with things that are dead and buried centuries ago? Is there nothing in all this that touches and vitalizes the church of the present day? Or are we never to get beyond the dry dust of the catacombs? He says, let the church remember that this rider on the white horse is the living Jesus, that he is in the forefront of every battle, that just as he conquered the beast and the false prophets, so he will conquer every enemy. The rider on the white horse is still riding on. Let the church follow clothed in linen, white and clean. And that's the, that's going to be the, that's going to sum up chapter 19. We'll begin chapter 20, uh, probably have to talk about the millennial views and all those kind of things. And I am so looking forward to finally getting to chapter 21 and 22.